Well, I too want to welcome you uh, this morning to Alliance Bible Fellowship on this beautiful spring morning. Decided I'm dressing like it's spring whether it is or not. Special uh, thanks to everybody who was here yesterday. We had a kind of a church work day where we spruced up the grounds and, and worked on the inside of the building. You guys noticed the flowers and stuff when you were coming in? It's kind of exciting they didn't freeze. Uh, thank you uh, for everybody who came out yesterday. 53 years old, and yesterday I hung my first piece of sheetrock. I was kind of excited about that, proud of that. I'm not going to tell you where. One, one year ago, the Roman Catholic Church elected a new pope. They voted for a new head of the Catholic Church, and it was actually an important historical event. You see, Pope Benedict XVI, elected in 2005, resigned in February last year, citing advanced age. You need to understand that the last pope to resign was Pope Gregory XII in 1406. Now, this was a momentous occasion. So the Catholic Church began the process of replacing the pope through what is called the papal conclave, the College of Cardinals, that is all of the cardinals in the church, they meet by themselves in this process. In fact, they, they're, they're sealed in the Sistine Chapel at the Vatican to vote. To be elected, the new pope has to receive two-thirds of the vote. Now, it starts actually with a blank ballot. Everyone all the cardinals write down their own choice, usually from their own number. Uh, the ballots are, are, are read aloud, counted. Uh, usually, since it's a blank ballot, the first election does not produce a pope. So they then burn those ballots with certain chemicals to produce black smoke coming out of the chimney. Used to be they'd burn it with wet uh, hay or straw. Now they just use chemicals, signaling, though, that a decision had not yet been reached. But, but two votes each morning and two votes each afternoon usually produ produces a new pope. When a candidate finally receives two-thirds of the vote, the ballots are again burned with different chemicals producing white smoke. The bells are rung. A new pope has been elected. As you may know, the pope is considered the successor to Peter and is the highest ranking person uh, in the 1.2 billion, that's with a B, billion member Catholic Church. So, on March 13th, the new pontiff was elected to replace Pope Benedict. Uh, Cardinal Jorge Bergoglio of Argentina was selected. Now, this was also significant. He was the first Jesuit and the first from the Western Hemisphere chosen to be Pope. He took the name Francis I after St. Francis of Assisi. And he was hailed, this part I want you to get, he was hailed a great choice. In fact, the people's choice. Everybody liked it. And he was a simple and humble man. For example, when he was introduced to the 150,000 people gathered in St. Peter's Square, he chose to stand on the balcony um, at the same level as, as the cardinals there, not on an elevated platform as was 
custom. And the first thing this new pope, or excuse me, the first thing a new pope usually does is to bless the people. But the first thing this new pope chose to do was to ask the people to pray for him. I you understand that this man is without doubt one of the most powerful men in the world. As powerful as any king ever. Elected by his peers, this one has been well received by the masses of the Roman church. He was, again, the, the people's choice. In fact, I would suggest that if he had been running against Jesus himself, he still would have won. Now, why do I say that? Well, because Jesus couldn't even win an election against a murderous insurrectionist 2,000 years ago when religious leaders then and his own people were casting the votes. The Sadducees, the, the priestly caste, the cardinals, and then the people, they, they rejected him and chose another, came to his own. His own did not receive him. Today is Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey, baby donkey. It's been suggested the disciples spread their coats on the colt to make it a little higher so that Jesus' feet wouldn't drag the ground. You see, the truth is Jesus didn't look very papal. We probably need to lose the mental image of white flowing robe with blue sash, pretty face. He didn't look like a church leader. He didn't look much like a king either. He looked more like a peasant. And his college of cardinals was a ragtag group of former Galilean fishermen, tax collector, a political zealot, Oh, and, and a traitor. And in losing that vote against a murderer, his fate was sealed. And so was ours. This story is one of deep irony. And as we go into Passion Week, that last week leading to, to Good Friday and, and, and Resurrection Sunday, I'm always fearful that we, we go from high point to high point, from, from triumphal entry to resurrection Sunday, and we miss the deep and dark valley in between. So I want us this morning to spend some time looking at the vote that Jesus lost. Because I, I, I believe it's a great picture of what Jesus came to do. In the vote, not only did Jesus lose and the murderer win, you won too. Again, I'm suggesting that if Jesus threw his hat in the ring for head of the church last year, not many would have voted for him. One writer of scripture said that he had no appearance that we would be attracted to him. One writer said that he possessed no scenes of stately majesty, you know, that you would expect of a world ruler. So 
when it came time to cast their vote, they cast their vote against this man. We read about it in the text that I've chosen for this morning, Mark 15. You can turn there. Mark 15, verses 1 to 15 say this. Early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council, that's the Sanhedrin, Jewish ruling body, immediately held a consultation and binding Jesus. They led him away and delivered him to Pilate. And Pilate questioned him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, it is as you say. The chief priest began to accuse him harshly. Then Pilate questioned him again, saying, do you not answer? See how many charges they are bringing against you. Jesus made no further answer. So Pilate was amazed. And then now at the feast, he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. The man named Barabbas had been in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. The crowd went up and began asking Pilate to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. Pilate answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? He was aware that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. The chief priest stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. Answering again, Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with him who you call the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, crucify him. Pilate said to them, well, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. So my question for you this morning is the same question that Pilate asked the gathered crowd, then what will you do with Jesus? What will you do with him whom you've called the king of the Jews? What will you do with Jesus? So last week, the pastors and some others in the church had the opportunity to go to a conference up in uh, Louisville called Together for the Gospel. And here a bunch of great preachers preach. I mean, they we'd sing three songs, sit down, and they'd preach like for... An hour and a half. It was glorious. John MacArthur, the conference was on evangelism, and John MacArthur told us, 7,500 people there, mostly pastors, told, told us, be sure and preach the gospel to your church. Because our churches are filled with people who know about Jesus but no, don't know Jesus. So this is the gospel. My question for you this morning is, what will you do with Jesus? How will you cast your vote? As you may know, um, the story begins with Jesus enduring two trials from Thursday night into Friday morning, one Jewish trial, one Roman trial. Each trial consisted of Three parts, the Jewish one before Annas and Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, that Jewish ruling body, and the Roman trial before Pilate and Herod Antipas, and then back before Pilate again. And none of the Gospels carries a full description of all of the events, but we're able to piece them together to come up with this reliable account. In Mark chapter 15, 
I just read, we're past Thursday night, we're past the Jewish trial. In that trial, uh, the Jews found Jesus guilty of blasphemy, claiming to be the Son of God. The problem was, while this was worthy of the death penalty with the Jews, it was not with the Romans. So they had to invent another charge. So they took Jesus bound to Pilate, where we now read about the Roman trial. We're simply going to make our way through that part of the story and finish by seeing this ironic symbolism of, of this vote. We're going to do a little bit more flipping through the scripture than we usually do. I'll put the passages on the screen so that you can follow along. Sanhedrin concluded their business early Friday morning, led Jesus to Pilate, the Roman governor. Again, the Sanhedrin had limited authority. They could try people according to Jewish law, but only Roman officials could give the death penalty. And make no mistake about it, they wanted Jesus dead. Let me tell you about this Pontius Pilate because there are some things about him that help us to understand what is, what is unfolding here. He was the fifth governor of Judea, from, ruled from 26 to 37 A.D., making him the longest-running governor of Judea. Actually, governor is kind of a general term. More precisely, he was a prefect or a procurator appointed by Tiberius Caesar. Now, a prefect was usually a military man, as Pilate was, and, and usually appointed then to govern small, very troubled, politically hot areas. Uh, while their, their areas were small, prefects um, exercised almost unlimited power. Their primary job was to keep the peace. In fact, failure to do so would result in, in, in being replaced and perhaps even banished to some remote Sight. Now, extra biblical sources put, portray Pilate as a cruel ruler who hated the Jews and made very little effort to understand them, which caused him lots of trouble. For, for example, when Pilate was first appointed governor of Judea, this political hotspot, he wanted to display his strength. I am not a man to be trifled with. So the very first thing that he did was to have his soldiers march into Jerusalem carrying their standards, their big flags, um, with the image of their divine emperor engraved on top. Now, none of the previous governors had done that. They were smart enough to know that the Jews, the Jews would stage a riot, not Pilate. And this is tradition. I'm going to show these miserable Jews who's boss. He had the soldiers march into Jerusalem at night so that the next morning the people woke up to what they considered rightly graven images. They went berserk. A large horde of protesters traveled the 70 miles from Jerusalem over to the seacoast, over to Caesarea, which is where Pilate lived, to personally protest. When they arrived, Pilate ignored them. He refused to see them for five days, but it was a huge problem. They wouldn't leave. Finally, he sent word for them to, be, to gather in an amphitheater, and he promised to meet them there. When he showed up, he came with, a, with his soldiers who surrounded the protesters. Pilate threatened them, go home or be executed. 
It is said that several protesters bared their necks and lay down at the feet of the soldiers and said, we will not leave until you remove the images. Kill us if you have to. <laughs> the whole thing blew up in Pilate's face. This was his introduction to the Jewish people. He had to give in. The last thing that he needed was uh, to start his rulership was a massacre. But, but it infuriated him. From then on, he did things to intentionally provoke the Jews. For example, once he used temple treasury money to build an aqueduct in Jerusalem. Again, the crowd went nuts. This time he sent protesting. He sent soldiers dressed as civilians armed with swords and clubs into the crowd. And at a prearranged signal, the soldiers pulled out their weapons and began killing the people around them. Nice guy. On another occasion, Luke refers to a, a, an unknown event. We don't know when this was, but in Luke 13, he says, now on the same occasion, there were some some present who reported to him, that's Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. I don't know what that is, but it was, that, you didn't do that. There was another time when Pilate got in trouble, not just with the Jews, but with Tiberius Caesar himself. Remember, Pilate was supposed to be maintaining the peace. Every time he turned around, these crazy Jews were threatening to riot. This time... This time, Pilate had decided to have some shields um, uh, made and dedicated to Tiberius. They were hung in Herod's um, uh, palace for everyone uh, to see in Jerusalem. Guess what the inscription on the shields read? They included titles of Tiberius to include one which declared him divine. People went crazy, only this time Tiberius heard about the riot. He wrote a letter threatening Pilate, telling him in no uncertain terms, take the stupid shields down. All of those events precede our text that I just read this morning. The point is, Pilate was already in a very tenuous position. The Jews did not like him. His superiors were breathing down his neck. He felt a tremendous pressure to keep the peace at all costs. But he hated the Jews, so he didn't necessarily want to give in to them. That is what is going on with Jesus. Frankly, Pilate didn't give a rip about a Galilean peasant. He just enjoyed opposing Jewish leadership. He also knew if the people rioted again, Tiberius heard about it, he would be out of there, which, by the way, eventually happened in 37 AD. So this is the situation before us. Pilate does not care about Jesus. It was Passover. Hundreds of thousands of Jews had gathered in Jerusalem. That's why Pilate was there away from his home in Caesarea. He would always show up with tons of soldiers to make sure these crazy Jews didn't riot again. And the Jewish leadership shows up at the Praetorium, that's his house in Jerusalem, with this man named Jesus. Now, no doubt Pilate had heard of Jesus, everyone had, but one look told Pilate that Jesus did not pose any type of political or military threat. I mean, the fact is, he didn't look like a king. 
And John tells us what happened first in John 18. Then, then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early. Some suggest it's early as 5 o'clock in the morning. And they themselves, catch this, did not enter into the praetorium so that they would uh, not be defiled but might eat the Passover. They didn't want to enter the home of this dirty, rotten, filthy Gentile. I mean, that would be terribly wrong, but they would murder Jesus. Therefore, Pilate went out to them, probably, as you've seen in the picture, standing on a, or the paintings, standing on a balcony and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? He's not impressed. It was actually good. I mean, Pilate is actually following Roman law to try a man. You had to know what the charges were that were being brought. Here, Pilate says, what are the charges? And now remember by this time, Jesus had been up all night. He had already been beaten by the Sanhedrin. He's standing there bloodied and bruised. Pilate takes one disdainful look at this Galilean peasant and says, what, what are the charges? Verse 30, they answered and said to him, if this man was not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. <laughs> really? I mean, do you see what they did? They, did, they didn't even answer his question. Pilate, I mean, come on. If he wasn't an evil guy, we wouldn't have brought him to you, would we? You can trust us, Pilate, buddy, pal. Right away, Pilate knew something was up. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. In other words, Pilate saw right through their ruse. It was obvious their problem with Jesus had to do with their religious laws. He didn't want anything to do with it. So, he, so at this point, the Jews said to him, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. Pilate, we've tried him. We can't kill him. And that's what we want. Verse 32, to fulfill the word of the of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Jesus, you see, had said he would be crucified. Now, get that. This is a Roman form of execution. The Jews, they, they stoned people all of the time, and the Roman uh, uh, leaders just kind of turned a blind eye to that. They could have stoned him, but Jesus said, I'm going to be lifted up for everybody to see and put on a cross. Everybody in this scene is following a script. They just didn't know it. Pilate had to judge Jesus, and Pilate had to hand him over for crucifixion because Jesus said so. It brings us to Luke 23, where we finally see some charges brought. And they begin to accuse him, saying, We have found this man misleading our nation and forbid, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. I want you to notice the charges they leveled against Jesus. It had nothing to do with blasphemy. Pilate would not have cared about that. So they invented some things, things that they thought would get Jesus the death penalty. First, they said, he is misleading our nation. <laughs> how? I mean, how was Jesus doing that? I mean, like healing people, driving out demons, feeding people, raising people from the dead? teaching people. Oh, it was that last one that irritated the Jewish leadership because in his teaching, he exposed them for the hypocritical shams that they were. 
They also said he is forbidding people to pay taxes to Caesar. That's not true. In fact, a few days before, when they asked him about paying taxes, Jesus actually said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God. Pay your taxes day after tomorrow. But it was that third accusation that caught Pilate's attention. They said, Jesus also claims to be Christ, a king. Pilate knew, hey, there's only one king, that's Caesar. And this got his attention. All four of the Gospels pick up this point of the dialogue, including our own Mark 15, when Pilate then asks, are you the king of the Jews? You don't look much like a king. To which Jesus responded in almost the same way that he had to Caiaphas. When Caiaphas asked him, are you the Christ, the Son of God? Jesus said, it is as you say. You need to understand that Jesus is being somewhat ambiguous here. He's saying, yes, I, I am a king, but not like a king you think. I'm obviously not what you would expect. We need to switch Gospels again and pick up the dialogue in John 18. And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting. Not this ragtag college of cardinals that I have. I'm talking about some different servants. And I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this, war, of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate answered him with that now infamous question, what is truth? He didn't care. When he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. Yes, Pilate, Jesus said, I, I, I'm a king, but you don't, have to worry. you don't have to worry about some simple insurrection. If I, if I were the king of this world, then my servants, uh, 12 legions of angels. He had mentioned them in Gethsemane. If you want to know what 12 legions of angels could do, go, go read in the book of Revelation and see what one angel can do. Twelve legions of angels would be waging war, but they aren't because my kingdom transcends this world. My kingdom is a universal kingdom. You're just a puny potentate, Pilate. It's obvious to Pilate that Jesus posed no threat. I mean, he had no position. He had no wealth. He had no soldiers. He's a Galilean peasant. What kind of, what kind of king is that? After affirming that he was indeed... A king, all four Gospels record that Jesus remained completely silent. Jewish leadership continued their assault against him. He remained silent. This floored Pilate. He tried hundreds of prisoners by now who no doubt, without exception, pled their case, pleading for mercy, proclaiming their innocence, counter-charging uh, uh, their accusers. But Jesus said nothing. Why? Because it was his time to die. 
It was for this reason that he had come. The accusations were false. Everybody knew it. The, the, the Jewish leaders knew it. Pilate knew it. Matthew 27 says Pilate knew they handed Je Jesus over for envy. Even Pilate's wife knew it. She sent word to Pilate to have nothing to do with this innocent man. Everybody knew Jesus was innocent. Everyone knew this was a, these were trumped up charges. Everybody knew this was a sham. So, so why answer? Besides, Isaiah 53 says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. So at this point, Pilate went out to the Jews and said the first of three times, don't miss that, the first of three times, I find no guilt in him. He's innocent. Charges brought, case examined, verdict rendered, case dismissed, right? It's probably about this time that we get to the second phase of that Roman trial, the trial before Herod. Luke is the only one to tell us about this. <clears throat> After Pilate said the first time, this guy is innocent, the Jewish leadership kept persisting. They're making further accusations. Finally, at one point, they say, hey, he stirs up the people teaching all over Judea, starting in Galilee, even as far as this place. And that got, again, Pilate's attention. He asked them, is this man a Galilean? Great. Hey, that means he's out of my jurisdiction. He falls under Herod's authority, who just happens to be in town for the Passover. So send him to Herod past the buck. Again, this is not because he cared about Jesus. He didn't. He just wanted to, to, to get rid of the Sanhedrin. He didn't want to give in to them. So Luke 23 tells us Jesus was taken to Herod. Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus for he had wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. And he questioned him at some length, and Jesus answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes were standing there accusing him vehemently, and Herod with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. This is the Herod that had arrested, imprisoned, and beheaded John the Baptist, Throughout his ministry, Jesus seems to have steered clear of this Herod. But Herod always wanted to meet Jesus. Why? Because Herod was concerned about truth. No, because he wanted to see Jesus do a trick. He questioned Jesus for a long time, and Jesus answered him nothing. Even when the chief priests and scribes vehemently leveled charges against him, finally Herod and his soldiers began mocking him mocking his kingship. You see, he didn't look much like a king, so they helped him and dressed him in a purple robe. Hail, king of the Jews. Sent him back to Pilate. This brings us back to Mark and this continuing <coughs> trial before Pilate. At this point, Pilate was still trying to release Jesus. Luke even says, since both Herod and Pilate had found him innocent, Pilate offered to scourge Jesus. Hey, why don't I just scourge him? Will that make you happy and let him go? I said earlier, John records three times that 
Pilate declared Jesus innocent. In Roman law, the accused is brought, charges made, evidence presented, the defendant is given a chance to defend himself, verdict issued. All of that had been done, should have been the end of the trial. There was no evidence. The verdict is read. He's innocent, but that was not good enough for the Jewish leadership who wanted Jesus dead. Pilate found himself in a predicament. He was looking for a way out, and suddenly an idea comes to him. For a a moment, he thinks, this is it. I can get out of this. All four Gospels record this, this vote. You see, there was apparently a Jewish custom which said the Roman governor released to them a prisoner of their choosing during the Passover. It's now later in the morning, Friday morning, the crowd began to gather. Pilate, no doubt, had heard about the Sunday before when the same crowds had, had been delirious when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. They, they spread out palm branches and their coats before him. They cried out, just as we just sang, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus was obviously wildly popular. I know, Pilate thought, I'll, I'll ask them if they want me to release prisoner Jesus to them. In fact, Pilate says, I'll put it to a vote. Who do you want me to release? King Jesus or murderer Barabbas? Now, who was Barabbas? His name literally means son of Abba or son of the father. Some suggest he was likely a son of some famous rabbi. Now, I think most of us have an incorrect view, an incorrect picture of him. Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, uh, depicts Barabbas as this ugly, filthy, grimy, raving lunatic. That's not who Barabbas was. Matthew calls him a notorious prisoner. A better translation would be a noteworthy prisoner. In fact, I'm going to suggest when you see Barabbas, you should see the white robe and the blue sash. Pretty face. Mark calls him an insurrectionist who had committed murder during the insurrection. But know this. The insurrectionists were folk heroes among the Jews. They hated the Romans. And anyone who tried to revolt against Rome, hey, the Jews loved. So now look back at Mark 15, 7 and 8 again. I had never noticed this before. The man named Barabbas had been in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. The crowd went up and began asking Pilate to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. The crowd, it appears, had gathered to ask Pilate to release their folk hero, Barabbas. Add to that the fact that their religious leaders are the ones who had delivered Jesus over to the Romans. Add to that, Barabbas was more like the deliverer king that the the Jews were looking for than Jesus. They were looking for one who would throw off Rome. Jesus? He's a peasant. I mean, he's actually the one that says that we should love our enemies. I love these filthy Romans. Barabbas, you see, looked more like a king than Jesus. 
Pilate made a tactical blunder. He assumed Jesus would be more popular than Barabbas. And he was wrong. Now, it may have been true up in Galilee, but they weren't in Galilee. So prompted by the chief priests and the elders, the crowd cast their vote. Give us Barabbas. We'll take him. Pilate was stunned. So he asked the question that every person on the planet must eventually ask. Then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? And so what will you do with Jesus? And they replied, crucify him. Pilate was shocked. Why? What what evil has he done? When they just shouted all the louder, crucify him. That was verse 15. Wishing to satisfy the crowd. Because he's in this tenuous political position. He's got to maintain the peace. Not realizing that the very Prince of Peace was standing in front of him. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Keep the peace, Pilate. One more failure, and you're out of here, Pilate. So Pilate makes a pragmatic decision. It was not a decision based on truth. It was not a decision based on right. He simply gave in to the demands of the Jews and sacrificed an innocent man to keep his job. Matthew, and only Matthew, records what Pilate did next. In a gesture to proclaim his own innocence, he took some water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. This was not a Roman custom. This was a Jewish custom. He was doing something he knew they'd get. I am innocent of this man's blood. (laughs) Of course he wasn't. He's the one that handed Jesus over to be crucified. I am innocent of this man's blood. And the people cried out unknowingly, His blood be on us and on our children. And they had no idea what they just said. For their guilt of putting the Messiah to death, His blood penultimately did fall on them. In judgment in 70 A.D. when these crazy Jews staged a revolt again and Rome came and squashed it once and for all and killed up to a million Jews. But ultimately, for those later to receive Jesus as their Christ, His blood was on them. John says, after the scourging, Pilate took Jesus out to them and said, Behold the man. What kind of king is that? But this is what Passion Week is all about. So as we close this morning, I want you to consider the ironies involved in this story, specifically this this vote. 
First, Jesus was clearly innocent and Barabbas was clearly guilty. Jesus the innocent was chosen, elected for crucifixion. Barnabas the guilty was released. Does that sound familiar? In fact, some suggest that the ones crucified with Jesus were part of the insurrection. They even suggest it's very likely that the middle cross was for Barabbas. Innocent Jesus took guilty Barabbas' place. That's an awful lot like us. We were the guilty ones, as bad as murderous insurrectionists. Indeed, we have committed insurrection. We as a race of people have rebelled against our sovereign king. But in my place condemned he stood. And Jesus took our sins in his body on the cross. Consider also the fact that the name Barabbas means son of Abba or son of the father. That's interesting. In fact, there are some manuscripts which suggest that his name was actually Jesus Barabbas. Jesus Barabbas. The truth is, the crowd voted for the wrong Jesus. They voted for the wrong son of the father. Or did they? You see, if Barabbas the guilty had been crucified, you would still be guilty too. So in this vote, Barabbas was chosen over Jesus all according to the predetermined plan of God so that Jesus would die in our place and we, the guilty, could go free. A stand for prayer. Father, we stand before you as a group of largely redeemed people because Jesus died for guilty insurrectionists. We rebelled against your sovereign right to rule our lives, and yet you sent your son to die in our place. And so my prayer is twofold. My prayer, first, Father, is that this day, this week, that we would dwell on Christ and what he has done for us to make us sons and daughters of the Father. And, 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 and secondly, my prayer is in a room this size with this many people that there would be those who would recognize what Jesus has done for them and they would go from knowing about Jesus to knowing Jesus, the one who died for them. I pray this in Christ's name.